Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 40. And then we'll turn to Zechariah chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 40. And let's read the first five verses. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken... On that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was the structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, Hear with your ears and give attention to all that I am going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. And behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around, and in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod, and goes on to describe the rest of the measuring of the temple. Now turn to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. And let me read the entire chapter. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, And another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I declare the Lord will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plundered for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is uh, aroused from his holy habitation. Now you notice one thing about both of those passages. They deal with a measuring. Uh, One, a measuring of the temple in uh, Ezekiel, and then a measuring of a new Jerusalem after the fall and after judgment. All right, now, remembering those ideas, we come to Revelation 11. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. 
And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of, all, of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that, it rain, that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon all those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they went up into the heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to their bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. I would be more than glad for any of you to stand up here and teach this, and for me to sit back there and listen to you. But... I'm called to do it, so here goes, with great fear and trembling. Now, remember what the chapter 4 through 11 is about. It's a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the destruction of apostate Judaism at the hands of the resurrected Christ. Now, I know it gets old, but I need to remind you every time about two principles of interpretation that are particularly important to bear in mind in this chapter. Number one. Remember, in the first verse of the first chapter, 
it tell there is a word communicated in the Greek in the New American Standard Version, signified in the King James Version, that means to write in figures of speech. And so the first thing to bear in mind is whereas everything in the book of Revelation is to be taken truly, it's not to be taken literally, it's to be taken figuratively. So we're warned right from the very start that uh, the various, the, the way truth is presented here in the book of Revelation as over against most of the other books in the Bible is that it's in highly figurative language. Second thing to bear in mind is the time frame of the book of Revelation. And you remember uh, what we have pled for is that uh, the older view that the book of Revelation was not written toward the end of the uh, first century, but was written in the late 60s, before the fall of Jerusalem. And do you remember we said that more and more modern Bible scholarship is returning to this older view and rejecting the newer view that it was written in 95 uh, A.D., largely because the view that it was written in 95 A.D. is based on guesswork. Largely, that Polycarp and Irenaeus were both disciples of John. Therefore, John had to live late into the first century. Hence, the book of Revelation was written in the last part of the first century. John did apparently live to be a very old man in the last part of the first century because I do think Polycarp was probably his student. But the older view is based not on guesswork, but on the book of Revelation itself. And let me remind you very quickly of just four or five of the reasons why we believe the book of Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Number one, because throughout chapters 4 through 11, there are several prophetic allusions to the fall of Jerusalem. That is, throughout this whole section we have seen, there have been many prophecies concerning the future fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., meaning it hadn't taken place yet. Secondly, here in our text, John is said to measure the temple in Jerusalem without any word whatsoever that that temple had been destroyed. And surely, if the temple had been destroyed, as important as that was, there would have been some reference to it, but there's no implication whatsoever, indication whatsoever that this temple had been fallen, that he is to measure. Then also in Revelation 17, verse 10, you see a reference to the fact that this was written during the reign of the sixth Roman emperor. And the sixth Roman emperor was Nero, who died about 68 A.D. In chapter 9, verse 11, we have a probable reference to Nero, who throughout his career identified himself very closely with the god Apollo. And then in Revelation 13, 18, we see an allusion to Nero Caesar, where we're told that the numerical value of his name is 666. So those are the basic reasons within the book of Revelation why we say it was written before the year 70 A.D. Now, that's important. So let's go to this measuring of the temple. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. Because here's the flow of this chapter. 
In the first two verses, you have this command to measure uh, most of the temple, the temple and its altars, but not the court outside the temple. And then in verse 3, we're told about these two witnesses, uh, and divine authority had been given them, and they were to witness for a time, uh, supplied by strength of the Holy Spirit, that they had greater power than Elijah and Moses. They, and when they finished their testimony, they would, a war would be uh, waged against them by the beast, and they would be killed. And their dead bodies, in verse 8, would lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. So mystically, it's Sodom and Egypt. Historically, it's Jerusalem. And we've seen uh, that Isaiah refers to apostate Jerusalem as Sodom. And we've already seen how it is referred to as Egypt in the book of Revelation. And then they're raised from the dead. And with that resurrection from the dead, they're, they're more powerful than they ever were before. And as a result of their preaching in verse 13, there was great earthquakes. The opposition collapsed. 7,000 people, not six, not five, but 7,000 people. One-tenth, not nine, not eight, but one-tenth of the people fell. And then the passage concludes with these wonderful hymns of praise to the triumph and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt in my mind it'll take take us at least a couple Sundays to work through this. But let's go as far as we can this evening. Verses 1 and 2. And there was given me, that is John the Apostle, a measuring rod like a staff, that is something like a bamboo rod, measuring stick. And someone said, doesn't matter who, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship it and leave out the court which is outside the temple, and don't measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they'll tread it underfoot. They'll tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So now the first thing we need to ask ourselves is what is this measuring of the sanctuary? Because that's what the word temple literally means here in our text. What is this measuring of the sanctuary, this measuring of the temple? Well, measuring in the Bible had one or two, three possible meanings. It meant to measure something so as to destroy it. Obviously, that can't be the case here because the only people that aren't destroyed are those, uh, is the temple that was measured. It also means to measure so as to define the limits and the boundaries and the nature of something. And it thirdly means to uh, measure so as to care for and protect and guard. And it's obvious as we look at our text that that's the meaning of the measuring, that that John was told to measure the temple, the sanctuary of God, where people worship, because that was God determining its limitations and its boundaries so that he could watch over it and care for it and protect it when everything else in the holy city would be destroyed. Uh, And so that's the significance of the measuring. Now, what did the temple represent? Well, in the Old Testament, obviously, it was the temple in Jerusalem, uh, Moses' tabernacle earlier, the great tent that that went all the way through David's reign. And then you had Solomon building his glorious temple. Then you had the destruction of that temple later on in the life of Israel. 
and the rebuilding of it so that there was another temple standing, not as great as the Salamic uh, uh, temple, but a great temple nevertheless standing in the days of Jesus. And what was that temple originally intended to be? It originally intended to be, on God's part, the pledge of God's presence with his people. That's where God's faithful people would come and worship him. So now he's referring to the temple in its original intent. It's where people would truly come and worship him, not like the apostate Jews of his day. When we come to the New Testament, what we hear about the temple in Jerusalem is it's going to be destroyed. And then another temple comes to the fore and is continually emphasized. And that temple is identified with the body of Christ, both literally and uh, spiritually. For instance, if you have your Bible there, turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And let's read verses 19 through 22. Uh, the, the, the Jews are confused about what Jesus is saying. He's just clean, cleansed the temple with the scourge of cords. And in verse 18, they say, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So now the idea of the temple is taking on a different meaning. Now Jesus identifies himself as the temple of God, the place where God lives on earth, the pledge of God's presence with his people. And so you can see that it didn't take much of a jump to get from Jesus' body as the temple of God to Jesus' spiritual body as the temple of God. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Now there's all kinds of passages we could turn to, but for the sake of time we won't. If you want them, I can give them to you. Ephesians chapter 2, let's start with verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, speaking to the converted Jew, uh, Gentiles, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple, sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. So now... What does that have reference to? The church, the body of Christ. So in Jesus' ministry, the temple, as far as Jesus was concerned, was his own body. And then as the New Testament proceeded, he would refer and his apostles would refer to the body of Christ, true Christians, as the true temple of God. Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 3. And you see, even in the book of Revelation, the temple... Uh, is used to signify a spiritual reality. Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Not in the temple in Jerusalem. 
and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon it the name of my God, or the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, not the old one's going to be destroyed, which comes down out of heaven from God, and my new name. So he's starting there, even in the book of Revelation, they're using temple in the spiritual sense. Turn to Revelation 7, 15. For this reason, they, the martyrs, are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. So you see the book of Revelation starts speaking as Jesus and as the apostles of this spiritual temple. So the measuring of this literal temple as it was intended. Now that's important. Not as it had apostatized. You remember what it says in the 11th chapter. This temple where people worship God. The apostates didn't worship God. They played at it. And as a figure of speech, it represented the true faithful church of God in Jerusalem by the time of 70 AD. Remember, everything from Revelation 4 to Revelation 11 is about Jerusalem and its destruction in 70 AD. And in the midst of all that, after having said that this temple would be demolished, he said, but there is a temple that will be safe and it will be secure. And that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, he's already brought this up earlier when he talked about the sealed of God. Remember the 144,000 people in Jerusalem? Not a literal number, but the entirety of God's covenant, faithful covenant people have God's seal. And when everything else is destroyed, the only people that survive are the sealed of God. Now he talks about the same thing from another perspective. When the holy city is burned... The only part that will be saved is this measured temple, this church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometime read the book of Acts because it is amazing when you study the, the, the progress of the gospel in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. By, by 70 AD, there were tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of convert, converts in Jerusalem. That every time you turn around in the book of Acts and they talk about preaching in the, in, in, uh Jerusalem. They talk about thousands here, 10,000 there. I mean, it's amazing how many faithful people there were in Jerusalem. And as I've said so many times, there's no record of any faithful Christian dying in the fall of Jerusalem. If they did, it is a very small number is the point. So here you have the true and entire seal church, the measured temple defined and protected by God and distinguished by God from the unregenerate who are given over to destruction. Now notice what he says. There's one part of this whole temple complex that's not to be measured. That is not to be protected. There was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God, the sanctuary, and the altar, and those who worship in it, and leave out the court of the Gentiles. And leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and don't measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they'll tread it underfoot, tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So he says, I want you to measure the sanctuary, but the courtyard outside do not measure. That's given over to the nations. That's where the apostate and reprobate, reprobate people live. They will taste the, the, uh, the bite of God's judgment when God pours it out upon Jerusalem. That the courtyard is where they're the ones that will be trampled. That part is not to be measured and not to be protected.
And that court represents condemned, unregenerate man in rebellion against God, which at this point includes apostate Israel. Jesus spoke, in fact, in his parables of those on the outside. And Judaism in the first century is now on the outside with its religion of works over against a religion of grace. Now, what is this trampling of the court by the Gentiles? The only part that's going to be safe is the measured temple, the church. Not the courtyard. It's been given over to the nations, the apostate reprobate nations, which includes Judea at the time. And these Gentiles will tread underfoot the holy city. There's a reference to Jerusalem. For 42 months. Now, what is this treading or trampling of the courts? Well, we're not left to guess. Turn back to Luke 21. I want to read several verses in Luke 21. Now, remember what Luke 21 is. All right, remember now, Revelation 11 is talking about the treading or trampling of the courts by the Gentiles, by the nations. Luke 21 is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. John was there. And uh, it's obviously related, 11 and 21. In fact, if you were to draw a picture of what Jesus is saying in Luke 21, it would be Revelation 11. All right, let's start with verse 10. Then he, that is Jesus, continued by saying to them, Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Remember, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines. That's in Revelation 11. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. You see, it's a local thing, synagogues and prisons. Bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony, like these two witnesses. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute, just like in, the, in Revelation 11. But you will be deli- delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all on account of my name, yet not a hair of your measured, sealed head will perish. By your endurance, you, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Roman armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter the city. Local, it's a local such thing. Because these are the days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written might be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child, to those who nurse babies in those days. For there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to the people. And they'll fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, Romans, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. I'm sure Jesus has in mind his own Sermon on the Mount when he tells John to write these things. That the, 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 the sanctuary is safe. The true church is safe. Everything outside the city, outside the temple, will be trampled by the Gentile Romans who will reign and continue their reign of terror until their time is up. 
So you see this close affinity of Revelation 11 to uh, Jesus' comments about the fall of Jerusalem. The people of God are safe. Everything else will be destroyed because it all represents the rebellion of man. Now there are some numbers here. Okay, you can check with your Georgia Tech people here. Verse 2, and leave out the court which is outside the temple. Don't measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread under the foot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1260 days. And then later on, it talks about three and a half days Oh, in verse 11. Now, what is this 42 months that... Uh, Jerusalem will be tread, trampled by the feet of the Romans. And during that time, there'll be two faithful witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days. Well, now, remember, numbers are highly significant, the book of Revelation. 42 months is three and a half years. Three and a half is a broken seven. You remember, seven is a very important number in the book of Revelation. It symbolizes perfection. It symbolizes completion, a long period of time. This is not seven uh, months, uh, seven years. This is three and a half years. It's not a long time. It's long enough, but it's a, a relatively br brief period of time. 1,260 days is about three and a half years. But I'll tell you another reason why I think he says it's 42 months or three and a half years. Not just to impress us with the fact that it's a short period of time. But do you remember the history of Israel? 721, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and depopulated by the Assyrians. 586 B.C., the Babylonians overturn the Assyrians and run roughshod over Jerusalem and take the Judeans captive in Babylon. And the Babylonians stay in power until they're overrun by the Greeks and one of the leading Greeks under Alexander was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who harassed and oppressed Israel, Judah, between the Testaments until the, the Greeks were overrun by the Romans. Antiochus Epiphanes, you can read about in the Apocrypha, bloodthirsty Greek tyrant. And you can read some of the heroic uh, defense by the Maccabean dynasty of Jewish people trying to protect the Jews from Antiochus Epiphanes. He invaded the land of Judah, terrorized it for three and a half years. And now, if you were alive in the first century and you knew your history, which you would have, the very thought that there's going to be another war another invasion, another oppression, three and a half years is going to put you in memory of the horror that you read about during the three and a half years reign of terror of Antiochus Epiphanes several generations earlier. So now what do we have here? We have literal Jerusalem destroyed and spiritual Jerusalem delivered. Literal Jerusalem destroyed, and spiritual Jerusalem delivered. 
Literal Jerusalem was destroyed because it turned its back on the Messiah. Centuries before, in developing a rabbinical, pharisaical religion of works, not of grace. The spiritual Jerusalem is the name we refer to the church. It's protected. It's measured by God. It's sealed. It's safe. Now, if you have trouble uh, thinking in terms of a literal Jerusalem and a spiritual Jerusalem, let me show you that that's a biblical way of talking. So if you'll turn with me, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. I'll show you that that's pretty much the way the Bible, the kind of language the Bible uses. Now, in Galatians 4, you have a, a, an allegory that Paul uses to refute the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were those who taught that you had to become Jewish to become Christian if you were a Gentile. And uh, that you uh, had to mix works and ceremonies with faith in order to be a Christian. So now Paul is using an allegory. Pretty complex one. But let me just give you the main pieces. He says you, uh, they claim to be the son of Abraham, uh, the, the Judaizers. And Paul said, well, you're right, but he's got two sons by two different women. You've got uh, Hagar and Sarah. Sarah, Abraham's true wife, was symbolic of all those who believed in salvation by grace. Hagar and her descendants was symbolic of all those who believed in salvation by human effort and by works. All right, now let's, let's see what he does here. Galatians 4, 25 and 26. Now this, Hagar, is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. He says, Hagar is, is a figure of speech. It symbolizes those who misuse Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem with its apostate legalistic religion. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So you see, the New Testament talks about a present literal Jerusalem that's symbolic of those who've turned against the gospel of grace and of a spiritual Jerusalem who is the mother of us all who believe in salvation by grace alone through Christ, who is the church. And so what we see prophesied in these two first verses of, of uh, Revelation 11 is that J literal Jerusalem will be destroyed, but spiritual Jerusalem will be delivered. And the point is, there is hope for the faithful church, even in the midst of terrible national judgment. The church will never be in a hopeless situation. Now remember... The purpose of the book of Revelation is to encourage the faithful people of God in the first century to uh, persevere even when they see such bloody things going on with the fall of Jerusalem. And so here God's telling them, even when you see these things happen, when you see the city overrun and destroyed and these armies of locusts that we read about last week and all these people die and the opposition collapse and people's bodies rotting in the gray, uh, rotting on the streets, treated with such indignity, uh, understand that even at this point, when things are pretty much as bad as they can be, when the whole nation of Judah is under terrible national judgment, there's hope for the faithful people of God. Or to be more specific, and this is something to cling to in future years, the church 
will never be in a hopeless situation. The church of God will never be in a hopeless situation. No matter how bad things become, no matter how severe God's judgment is upon apostate churches and reprobate cultures, the church will never be in a hopeless situation. Whatever happens in this country from here on out, remember the true temple has been measured. Remember the true people of God have the seal of God upon their foreheads. And that whatever happens in this culture, God will make sure, as he said, in, uh, as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, not a hair on your head will perish. Whatever God in his providence see fits to bring upon us, the church is safe in his great hands. Now, that brings us to the two witnesses that we're going to spend our time on next week, but I do want to just introduce them to you. So let's read about them again. And I will grant authority to my two, my two witnesses. So here, whoever these witnesses are, they have the authority of God and they are claimed by God. And they will prophesy for three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. That is, during the same time as this judgment, these two witnesses with divine authority are going to be preaching a divine message. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must, that's a sovereign word, he must, according to the decree of God, be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky, these two witnesses, have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes out out of the abyss, we'll hear more about beasts future chapters, will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively or mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Jerusalem. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. They'll send gifts to one another, sort of an anti anti Christmas. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. I love that verse. The reason they killed these prophets is because they're preaching tormented people. We need more preachers whose preaching torments people. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into the heavens in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake. Earthquakes in the Revelation uh, are figures of, of disturbances, tremendous disturbances on earth. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, remember, the numbers are figurative. Ten is a big number, important number. It's a number of completion. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. 
So the point is, not that there was literally a tenth or literally 7,000 people, but the point is, the opposition collapsed. That's the point. The heart of the opposition to these prophets collapsed because of the judgment of God. Now, who are these witnesses? That's the first thing. Well, it says that these witnesses preached during the same time that the city was being destroyed. Now, what do we know about witnesses and the number two? You know, you know anything about witnesses and the number two? Well, try Deuteronomy 17.6, which says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the influence of one evidence of one witness. So there you have in the Old Testament court system, before somebody could be found guilty, he could only be found guilty on the basis of two corroborative testimonies. Two witnesses, not just one, but two. Then in Matthew 18, verse 16, you see that case law as the basis of church discipline. Now this is a great way to, sh- to prove theonomy. Deuteronomy 17, 6 a case law is used as the basis for church discipline in Matthew eighteen sixteen. That says, if you can't get somebody to repent yourself, take two witnesses or three with you, that by the mouth of these witnesses, his guilt may be confirmed. Then, there's another time we read about two and witnesses. And that's in Luke 10, verse 1. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. So here you have these 70 witnesses that Jesus sent out to preach two by two. And then you have this idea of two and witnesses in the book of Revelation, In Revelation 2 and 3. You remember what's in Revelation 2 and 3? Christ's letters to the seven churches. Christ complained against all of those churches, but how many? Two. There were two churches that Jesus had no complaints against because they were faithful witnesses. One was Smyrna and the other was Philadelphia. So who are these Two faithful witnesses, not two specifically identified human beings, but church, the church bearing witness and faithful testimony through its members in the first century and throughout the centuries until the second coming of Christ. So that in the first century, you did have faithful witnesses like Smyrna and Philadelphia. You did have faithful witnesses that were not afraid to speak the truth and did it boldly. And who were backed by the authority to God, uh, uh, of God and who were persecuted, but who eventually led a great awakening of the earth. And we'll come to that next week. What did Jesus, what it was said in Acts 1.8? It says, you shall be my witnesses, witnesses that belong to me. And you are witnesses that will wear sackcloth. Now, sackcloth, uh, you don't get at Joseph Banks. Uh, Sackcloth is a symbol of penitent faith, grieving, 
judgment. And here these witnesses are called upon to be faithful witnesses in preaching the judgment of God upon that condemned city of Jerusalem. Now I'll notice one other thing and two other things then we'll quit. On the basis of two witnesses, guilt is confirmed. On the basis of two witnesses, guilt is confirmed. These are two witnesses that are preaching condemnation to the city of Jerusalem. Guilt is confirmed. We've seen it. We're testifying to it. We can corroborate each other's witnesses. We preach judgment. And the two witnesses are telling the world this city is guilty as charged. And what that means then is in our preaching and teaching in cultures and societies like Jerusalem in the first century, the major note must always be on judgment. On judgment. You remember the first person to bear that out in recent times was Francis Schaeffer. And you remember his great book called Death in the City, which was an application of the book of Jeremiah. He brings out that if we're going to be faithful witnesses in the 20th and now the 21st century, then our gospel must include a strong note of judgment upon this culture, calling people to repent of their sins and come to Christ before it's everlastingly too late. And you see the same thing of these witnesses. These witnesses corroborate each other and stand before fallen Jerusalem in the midst of fallen Jerusalem and declare God's just judgment upon them and calls them even at that late point to death but the culture rejects him, rejects them and kills them. Let's go back here. Three. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they'll prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees. And the two lampstands. That stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, if you've read Zechariah, you know exactly what he's talking about. So turn to Zechariah because this is a direct reference to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. And you see where Jesus got his point again. Verse 1, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is wakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these things, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these things are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Go back to Revelation 11. These two um, witnesses, verse 4, are the two olive trees, two lampstands, before the Lord of all the earth. In other words, this golden lampstand described in Zechariah 2 was, 4 was gorgeous. Gold, you can get the picture in a bowl. And, but it, it, it could not function at all unless it was connected to the source of oil. And it was not connected to a tank of oil. 
it was connected to two olive oil trees so that the source of power would be constant and there would never be any interruption. And so here you see these prophets, these two witnesses in the first century. They speak with the Lord's authority, but they also speak in the Lord's power. And they do things, not beginning then, but also we'll see that continue throughout history because of their connection with this constant source of power. They're killed. Their bodies are treated very uh, contemptuously. But they're raised from the dead. And when they're raised from the dead... Things are never the same in history. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this overwhelming picture. Help us to learn its lessons well and be faithful witnesses, calling our nation to repentance for the judgment of God is at hand. Regardless of what happens to us, Help us to be faithful witnesses who preach in your authority, backed by your power, knowing that someday that preached word, whatever happens to us, will affect the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.